right, so hopefully if you're joining us, you received a packet from me that had the lyrics to the songs that we sang, as well as the lessons for the sermon. Should say God's mercy and compassion to Job and to us. And if you're new to joining us, if you're tuning in, perhaps because you don't have a church family or your church is not streaming, then we're very glad to have you with us. And I'll be sending out a packet like this each week. It'll be uploaded to Sermon Audio. You can get it there. Or if you comment on the Woodland Christian Church page, just reach out to me or Pastor Nathan, then we can ensure that you're getting the weekly announcements that the church sends out, which will give you this packet and any other news about what we're doing. So we're glad to have you joining us this morning. And we'd also invite you to tune back in on Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Pastor Nathan will get to uh, lead us in a time of worship. He'll be with his family, and so he's inviting, inviting us into his home like you were invited into my home last Wednesday. And so just put that down on your calendar to, to join us at 7 o'clock this, this Wednesday. Let's pray. Father, we'd love to be together with our brothers and sisters in Christ at this time, but we are so thankful that we live in a day and age that allows us to uh, still be together, even remotely, and to partake of communion together and to worship you through song and then to continue our worship through the sermon. As your word goes forward at this time, Lord, and washes over each of us that are tuning in, we're thankful that it still accomplishes that work, whether we're here in the pews together or whether we're listening in our homes. And I'm thankful for that as a pastor, Lord, that as the congregation you've given me the privilege of shepherding is able to tune in, that in that sense, you're able to reach them. It's not so much me reaching them at this time or speaking into their homes and their lives, but really that's something you're doing. And what a, what a great blessing for me. I'm feeling somewhat shortchanged regarding the ability to shepherd or feeling limited regarding the relationship with the people that you've given me, but how blessing, how blessed I am to know that you are still ministering to them and allowing us to have this time together. Use me as your vessel, Lord, to speak to and challenge and encourage your people. Through your word, let this be a time that you meet with them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. I'd like to go and turn to the book of Job. That's where we'll be this morning. We'll be flipping around to quite a few passages in this wonderful book. So you got Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. So probably the simplest way to find it is turn to the middle of your Bibles and then turn past the book of Psalms, and you'll be there. And so this sermon's been on my heart. with everything we've been experiencing with the coronavirus. And I want to begin with a simple point I want to invite you to consider. And it's the difference between trials and temptations. The difference between trials and temptations. Trials and temptations are not the same. Trials are tests from God. They accomplish purposes that he desires in our lives, and they only reach us, as we'll be seeing in the sermon this morning, after passing through God's throne So we can be encouraged, whatever that trial looks like uh, at this time, we could say the coronavirus, that it is part of God's plan for us. We might not be comfortable with that. You might, if you're not regularly attending Willing Christian Church and just tuning in, even be uncomfortable with that reality if you haven't considered the sovereignty of God. But to me, it is a great encouragement to know that everything taking place is not taking place apart from God's will or as any sort of surprise to him. And even the coronavirus was something that he wants to use for our good and for his glory. Temptations, on the other hand, they do not come from God. 
They are from our flesh. They are used by the devil. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and nor does he himself tempt anyone. And so consider trials used by God for our good to bring out the best in us, temptations used by the devil to bring out the worst in us. But even though trials and temptations aren't the same, it's interesting, I'll ask a question. I won't really be able to hear all of you answer like I typically do. I suppose a few people here could answer. Even though trials and temptations are different, do you see how there is a common temptation associated with every trial? Just think about that for a moment. The common temptation associated with every trial, and what is that? It's a temptation to get angry or to get bitter or to pout or become resentful toward God or be upset that this has been allowed in your life. And so even though temptations are not from God, there is the common temptation because of our flesh that resides in every single trial, and it is that temptation to get angry with God. This is exactly what Satan said was going to happen in Job's life. If you look with me in Job 1, verse 11... Satan said, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and Job will surely curse you to your face. So if he's afforded these trials, then he'll curse God. Job was wealthy, he's prosperous, and Satan said that if God was to take that from him, then he would turn against God. Look at Job 2 verse 5, the next chapter. Satan says, stretch out your hand. Touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. So Satan says if you touch Job physically, he's going to curse you. And then very sadly, even look at Job 2.9, his wife told him to curse God. Job 2.9, Job's wife said, do you still hold fast to your integrity, curse God, and die? So what a wonderful wife. It's really kind of one of the questions of Scripture in my mind that one of the greatest men could have such a horrible wife. I don't know how he ended up with this woman, but when you look in the account and you see that Satan was able to remove everything else from his life, you can see why he allowed this woman to remain, right? She was his pawn or she was his servant. Um, And by his, I don't mean God, I mean the devil. So she served the devil, uh, was striving to see her own husband curse God. Look at Job's response in verse 10. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. And now, if I just pause right there, reflecting on something, we should be considering the temptation for us to get frustrated or angry with God. We can easily look at characters and individuals in Scripture and have some distance in our minds between us and them and think that they act this way and we act this way. But the reality is these individuals are just like us. They're human and they are fallible and the same temptations that they give, gave into are the ones we can give into. And so we need to be on guard against, perhaps we wouldn't curse God, but perhaps we could become resentful or bitter because of the isolation in our homes or because of the effect on the economy or the effect on loved ones we have or even just that fear that we're uh, caused to live with if we're going to get sick ourselves. And so we just want to be sensitive to this, to this temptation, ensure that we're resisting it. If we were to curse God then we are to be one of the foolish people. That's what Job said to his wife is very true to all of us, that 
We would be one of the foolish people if we were to curse God because of something difficult we go through. Job goes on to say, should we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not also accept adversity? And then this wonderful commentary, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Look at Job 13, 15. Turn a few chapters to the right to Job 13, 15. Look at the first half of the verse. This wonderful statement, Job says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Which is really his way of saying what? No matter what happens, I am going to maintain my faith in God, no matter how terrible things might look. And by this point that he said these words, they did look horrific for him. He said, I will continue to trust God. He, we didn't see behind the curtain, did we? What we're given, or Job couldn't see behind the curtain, we get chapters 1 and 2 and see the dialogue that took place between God and the devil, but Job couldn't see that. So he is forced to walk by faith, and he said, my faith will be maintained. I will hold to my integrity. And this is what it looks like when we talk about persevering through trials. Persevering through trials doesn't mean that you survive, because some people experience trials and they die. Persevering through trials means your faith survives, and there's a world of difference there. There are many martyrs who went to their deaths, and their body didn't survive, but their faith did. And so it's never a question during trials of whether we live physically. The question is whether our faith lives or whether our faith survives that trial. And with Job, we see that was the case. His faith in God was maintained. And this is why Job is listed as the example for us in the New Testament. While we consider the perseverance of the saints, what James does is he lifts an individual from the Old Testament. Even though Abraham is the father of faith, even though David is the man after God's own heart, Job is the premier example of a persevering saint. And so when we consider that topic, the perseverance of the saints, and when James wanted to discuss it, he wanted to provide us with an example and Job is that premier example of a persevering saint. You don't have to turn there, but James 5.11, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. And this is very interesting. It's going to be the main topic for the rest of the sermon. That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And to me, I really couldn't think of a better example of a persevering saint in all of Scripture than Job, because ha, if there, I can't think of anyone who would have been more tempted or tempted more strongly to curse God than Job was, and yet he maintained his faith. When we think about persevering through trials, my suspicion is Job's probably the last person we want to compare ourselves with, right? If we want to think about an Old Testament saint and our faith being compared with that individual or our lives compared with, with him or with her, Job's probably the last person um, because of what he experienced. It's very discouraging to think about having to be like him or to live like him. It's discouraging to think that we would have to be, for lack of a better way, say, as good as him or as wonderful or great as him if we are to persevere. Or in other words, another simpler way to say it is, if we want to think about being a persevering saint, it seems very discouraging for us to have to compare ourselves with Job because we don't want to think that we have to be that good here's what I'd say. There's a real possibility that Job was chosen as the example of a persevering saint, not for us to read about, not just because he persevered, but because of how he 
persevered, and that he did not persevere perfectly or sinlessly. And this brings us to lesson one on your handouts. Lesson one, perseverance doesn't mean perfection. Perseverance doesn't mean perfection. In many respects, Job's example can be very encouraging to us because of the way that he responded. Listen to these familiar verses. James 1, 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so we're familiar with this, that reality that trials perfect us or they mature us. But if you consider what that means, we're not perfect already, right? (laughs) We have to be perfected or we have to be matured because we are imperfect. And what that means then is we are not going to handle trials perfectly. Since we aren't perfect yet, we will not look like Christ when he went through the trials that he experienced. There are ways that we will fall short while persevering through trials, and it doesn't mean that we have become apostates. It doesn't mean that we have turned from the Lord or that we're cursing him. It simply means that we are not perfected yet, and we have even imperfect faith that, while still salvific, does, or while still saving us, doesn't allow us to handle even the trials in our lives perfectly. And the whole reason I mention that is because Job is a tremendous example. So here's what I mean. If you're familiar with the book of Job, or since the word perseverance, maybe you've heard this before, is used interchangeably with um, perseverance and patience, use the same Greek word interchangeably. So for example, in James 1, 2 through 4, that word for perfect or perfecting is the same word for patience or the same word for perseverance in James 5.11. And so the point is, James 5.11 says, you've heard of the perseverance of Job, but it could also be saying, you've heard of the patience of Job. And this is the question I have for you. When you read the book of Job, did Job look patient? No, I don't think he did. I don't think he did. He didn't sit there quietly, calmly, while suffering, saying some centuries from now, James is going, the half-brother of Jesus is going to write about counting it all joy when we experience various trials, and I'm experiencing the most unimaginable trials, and so I should be counting these as great joy. He didn't say that. He was a man who was suffering, and he was greatly struggling while he was persevering. Look at the rest of Job 13, 15. He said, even so, I will defend my own ways before him. Who's him? who's him? It's not his friends. He's talking about defending himself before God, and he definitely did that. Go ahead, and I don't mean that to his credit. Turn to Job 9. I'm going to look at a few verses in this chapter, and as we read them, I want you to ask yourself if Job looked patient. Or another way to say it is, did Job look like he was persevering perfectly? We know he was a persevering saint, but does it look like he was persevering perfectly? Job 9.23, A fitting verse, considering the coronavirus, for us to consider, Job says, if the scourge or if the disease or if the coronavirus slays suddenly, he, this is God, laughs at the plight of the innocent. 
This is Job saying this. This is a terrible accusation. He's saying that God laughs when innocent people suffer. And what's interesting about Job saying this is I suspect there could be some number of other people who would say this too, but we wouldn't think of it being believers, would we? When we think of people saying something like this, we think of agnostics or atheists or God-hating people. But interestingly, we've got one of the greatest men in Scripture saying this, bringing this accusation against God. Turn to Job 21, verse 4. Job 21, verse 4. Job says, As for me is my complaint against man. Which is really saying what? What's he saying here? Which is interesting because he's saying this after he's heard from his friends some number of times. He's saying, I'm not upset with God. Or, excuse me, I'm not upset with man. I don't have a problem with man. My problem is with God. And this chapter, it's really long... Uh, one long criticism of God for allowing the wicked to prosper. Let me show you just a few verses. Look at verse 9. Job says, The houses of the wicked are safe from fear, neither is the rod, which refers to the rod of punishment of God upon them. So what's he saying here? He's saying that the wicked are safe from God's judgment. And why is that? Because he doesn't punish them. So really, this is an accusation against God's justice, and he says that they're safe, that they are never suffering as a result of the sin that they engaged in. Look at verse 17. He said, how often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows God distributes in his anger. So first he says that the lives of the wicked are never what? Brought to an end early. They get to live these very long lives to a good old age. And during those years, he says that God never gives them trouble or sorrow, that the wicked don't ever suffer like the righteous. Turn to Job 24, 12 to show you another criticism. And just to be clear as we're reading this, this might be unnecessary, but even if there's, for me to say this, but even if there's a few people that this might apply to, then it's worth it. We are not looking at these criticisms of Job's to legitimize them. We're looking at them as evidence that he didn't persevere what? Perfectly. That's why we're looking at this, to be clear. This is not to give credence to the criticisms he brought against God. We're looking at the evidence that even though he was a persevering saint, he did not persevere perfectly. Job 24, 12. He says, the dying grown in the city, the souls, and again, I mean, you could think of cities in Italy. You could think of cities in China. The dying, they groan in the city. The souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not charge them. He means the ones responsible with wrong. So he's accusing God of being unconcerned with the suffering of people, and he accuses God of being unjust because he doesn't punish those who are responsible for causing the suffering. And then on top of Job's accusations against God, toward the end, he became a very self-righteous individual. Turn to Job 31. This is his final speech to his friends, and I just want you to notice how it largely oozes with pride. He's not talking to God yet, but he is responding to his friends. Look at Job 31, verse 5, as he discusses his goodness and his innocence. 
Job 31, 35, 31, 35, he says, Oh, that I had, someone, had one or someone to hear me. Here is my mark or my signature. He's saying he's writing this down and putting his name on it. That's how confident he is in what he's about to say. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor, and in many Bibles that's probably capitalized because he's referring to God himself. Oh, that my prosecutor had written a book. Or in most translations, Job said, Let the Almighty answer me. And so he feels very entitled to hear from God regarding what he suffered because he thinks he's so innocent. And he is so self-righteous that he says, I'd like, basically, I'd like to see God just try to write a book about how bad I've been because he's not going to be able to come up with anything to, to pen or to put down on paper. Verse 36, surely I would carry it, basically carry it or carry that book or carry any accusation that God would bring against me. I'll carry it on my shoulder. I will bind it on me like a crown. And so he says that the accusations that God could bring against him because he's been so good are so few and so insignificant that he wouldn't mind wearing those accusations around on his shoulder for people to see or even wearing them around as a crown um, because he's so convinced of how righteous he's been. Verse 37, he says, I would declare to him, to God, the number of my steps like a prince, I would approach him. And so he says he'd tell God everything he's done, every step. That's what he says. Every step I've taken, I would share with him because he doesn't think he's done anything wrong. And he says he's a, he would approach God the way that a prince approaches a king. Verse 38, if my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money, or caused its owners to lose their lives, the owners of the land. Then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended, at least the ones that he has for his friends. And so his point in these three verses, 38 to 40, is he's been so innocent that even land itself could not bring an accusation against him or say that he hasn't handled it correctly. And then the last, the first verse of chapter 32, you say, well, when do his friends respond? What do they have to say to this? Job 32, verse 1, so these three men, Job's friends, they ceased answering Job because, and then notice this, he was righteous in his own eyes. And so they had nothing else to say to him. They recognized that he'd reached a point where he could not be convinced of his sinfulness. And so they had nothing else to say to him. Have you ever spoken to a very self-righteous person who was convinced of their goodness? And in denial about their sin, you'll notice there's nothing else that you can say to them. And that's the point that Job's friends reached with him. Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in Luke 18, 9, it says that Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous in their own eyes and despise others. And so Job's very close. He's dangerously close to being like Jesus was warning about in that parable, or perhaps he already was like that person that Jesus was warning about in the parable. And here's the point. James 5.11, you have heard of the perseverance or the patience of Job, but through parts of the book, how did he sound? He didn't sound like he was persevering very well. He sounded like he was struggling greatly. I mean, what words could we use to describe the way that he sounded? He sounded impatient. He sounded angry. He sounded critical of God. He, he was frustrated. He was questioning. He was doubting. He was self-righteous. 
And so then you say, well, how can Scripture say that he persevered? And Scripture can say he persevered the same way that every single other person who has ever persevered has persevered, by maintaining faith, by keeping their trust in God. So it is not to say that persevering saints persevere perfectly. There's no saint that, except for the Lord himself who has ever lived perfectly on this side of heaven. It's just to say that even while we're struggling, or even while we're doubting, or we're impatient, we're, while we're questioning, while we might even have criticisms that we bring to God, while we're frustrated that our faith is maintained and we are, don't become apostates and turn from him completely. And it is a blessing to me, despite the difficulty of this book, many people, unfortunately, kind of read two parts of Job. They read the very beginning, the first two chapters, and then they kind of look at the very end, and then they skip the body of it in between. But that's where there's some really great encouraging truths as we see this man struggling under the weight of what he's experiencing. And to be candid with you, when I see Job struggling, what I think is he's doing a phenomenally better job than I would do if in his situation. And so I hope I don't sound at all to be uh, condescending toward him. I think he was exceptional compared to the way that I probably could have handled these trials. But I want to be clear about what I'm doing and what I'm not doing. I'm not trying to defend or defend Job's self-righteousness or criticisms or accusations. I am not trying to encourage any amount of self-righteousness on our parts, and I'm not trying to encourage any sorts of accusations against God like he brought. I am simply trying to encourage us that persevering through trials does not mean being perfect. We just need to make sure that when we are imperfect or impatient or angry or whatever words might um, describe us, that we are holding fast to our faith. And like Job said in Job 13, 15, that we can still say, though he slay me, and interestingly, when Job said, attributed his trials because he couldn't see behind the curtain, he couldn't look into those two chapters, Job 1 and 2, that we saw, he couldn't attribute his suffering to the devil. He couldn't say, though the devil slay me. He saw it coming from the hand of God, and he said, though God slay me, yet I will trust him. And so, whatever ways in which we feel like God's hand might be heavy on us, that we can still say, I will trust him through this. And that's what it means to be a persevering saint. And there's another way that Job is a great encouragement or example to us. In the next few chapters, we're not going to read them, but chapters 32 to 37, Elihu speaks, and then who starts speaking in Job 38? God does. Job finally gets the audience with God that he's been wanting throughout much of the book. God questions Job, and then we're not going to read all that. You're probably familiar with those questions that he brings again to Job, and you kind of picture Job as this very self-righteous man who wants this audience with God, and then when he receives this audience, you almost see God, you almost see Job sinking under the weight of all of the accusations that God is bringing against him. The questions, really, which were accusations, because when he says, where were you, that sounds like a question, but it's really an accusation because it's saying, you're weak. You're, you're a fallible human being. Who do you think you are to question me? Who do you think you are to bring these accusations against me and darken my counsel? So even though they are questions on the surface, primarily they are accusations against God that this weak human being thinks that he can criticize 
the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. So Job 40, verse 3, turn there. Job 40, verse 3. Job answered the Lord, and he said, Behold, I am vile. So that's quite a change, isn't it, from the earlier chapters. He has moved from this very self-righteous individual, or let me say it like this. He's, mute, he's moved from viewing himself very self-righteously or being righteous in his own eyes was how it was written earlier to now being vile in his own eyes. And he says, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice I've spoken, but I will proceed no further. And so what did Joe basically say? I should have kept my mouth shut. I should have been quiet. I wanted this audience with God. It definitely did not go the way that I thought. And whenever I read this, I don't know how many times I've considered these chapters, I have to think of the tremendous application that they have for so many people who, like Job, think that they want what? An audience with God. Answers to their questions. Responses from the Lord about the things that they have experienced or gone through. And, it, and I don't mean to sound at all insensitive to people who have lost a child or who have experienced some amount of betrayal or some diseases. People who you look at and just you feel immense compassion or pity for them and thankfulness that you're not in those circumstances. So I don't mean at all to sound insensitive to them, but I do think there are people who suffer sometimes, and then like Job, they think they want some audience with God. They want him to explain why they're going through what they're going through. And when you read what happened with Job, you see very clearly that God doesn't have to answer. He doesn't owe us any explanation. He doesn't have to defend himself. That is what it means to be God. To be God means you do what you want. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven, and what? He does whatever he pleases. And so if God wants any disease or virus or affliction, if he wants to be merciful and gracious, or if he doesn't want to be merciful and gracious, that's his prerogative. That's what it means to be God. You do what brings you glory. That's his position. And I think the sooner any of us can realize that in our Christian lives and the better our lives can be, to recognize that God is always acting in the interest of his own glory. He is always bringing himself the most glory. He does what he pleases, not what man pleases. Look at Job 42, where Job speaks again. He's finally learned that lesson that I just discussed. Job 42, verse 1, Job answered the Lord, and he said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked... Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. So he feels like he spoke when he should have remained silent. He says, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, let me speak. You said, I will question you. You shall answer me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself or I hate myself. So So notice the transition. He moves from viewing himself self-righteously, or he moves from being righteous in his own eyes to being vile in his own eyes to now hating himself. And he says, I repent 
in dust and ashes. And just notice this beautiful word here in verse 6. I mean, it's almost a bad word in some Christian circles. He says he repented. And so what I love about this is that God loved Job enough to purge him of the self-righteousness that had been plaguing him. God loved him enough to not let him remain in that place that he was in. And I think one of the things that really challenges me is if there's anyone in history who looks like God owed him an explanation, who is it? It's Job. I can't think of anyone else that looks like they're more deserving of an explanation from God than Job. And if God didn't feel the need to explain himself to Job, he doesn't feel the need to explain himself to us. If Job doesn't get an explanation, and my suspicion is none of us have suffered as much as he suffered or lost as much as he lost, then God doesn't have to explain himself to us. And if we were to talk to him, then he would have some number of questions about who we think we are as the clay to be able to question the, the potter. The vessel doesn't get to look at the one, as Paul says in Romans 9, the one who formed it and say, why did you form me this way? And so one other point from this is if we are to be any of the things Job was, so earlier I was saying we're not going to persevere perfectly. We're going to be impatient at times. We're going to be critical at times. We're going to be doubtful at times. We might have accusations or questions. And here's what we learned from Job. If that characterizes us, then the other thing we learn from him is to repent. Because to Job's great credit is, yeah, he was impatient. Yes, he was critical of God. Yes, he accused God. Yes, he said some terrible things. We saw them. I didn't have to make them up. I I didn't have to assign him motives or say, I think Job's probably thinking this because if a normal person would be going through this, this is what he'd probably be saying. And we can look at the verses, and some of those really, this is not an, an overstatement, terrible things that Job said, and should we say those things, then the other thing we learn from Job is we must repent. That's how he is also a great example and encouragement to us. So if you're impatient, if you're angry, if you're critical, afterward, if you're, let me say like this, if you're impatient, critical, or angry like Job, then afterward, also be like Job and what? <laughs> repent. That's the other way that he's a tremendous encouragement to me, great example to all of us. Now, in James 5.11, you don't have to turn there, but let me just share this verse with you again. We count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job, and you have seen the end intended by the Lord, and this is it, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. It doesn't even say the Lord is compassionate and merciful says he's very compassionate and merciful. Now, just come up out of the book of Job for a moment, and let's think about something. Where are some places in Scripture you might expect to read that God was very compassionate and merciful? Here's just some examples that came to mind for me. Manasseh was the wickedest king in the Old Testament. It reigned for 55 years, seemed to have engaged in as many sins as possible, Rare are the commandments that he didn't break. I mean, if there was a false god or an idol that that man could worship, he worshiped it. He didn't just sacrifice a son to the fire as some of the evilest men in Scripture did. It says that he sacrificed sons, plural. 
to Moloch. He was largely responsible for the Jews being brought into exile in Babylon. But interestingly, at the, at, after he was brought into Babylon, what did Manasseh do? He humbled himself and he repented. We will see Manasseh in heaven someday. And then listen to this, 2 Chronicles 33, 12. When Manasseh was in affliction, he implored the Lord. He humbled himself greatly. He prayed to God and God received his entreaty and God brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. I mean, talk about mercy. Saul didn't get the throne back, although you could say that Saul never repented like Manasseh did. But I'll say this, the fact that not only did God forgive Manasseh, but also restore him to the throne is a tremendous example of God's mercy and compassion. Think about the Ninevites, some of the wickedest people in the Old Testament. They repented, God spared them. Jonah was so angry about the forgiveness of the Ninevites that what did Jonah want for himself? Pretty much the same thing he wanted for them. Death, right? He wanted the Ninevites to die. If they weren't going to die, then Jonah said, then I want to die. Just go and take my life. It's not worth living if I have to see these people continue. And then God rebuked Jonah. In Jonah 4.11, God said, should I not pity that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? God had compassion even on these evil people, which makes him look very compassionate and merciful. Listen to this part of the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son arose, Luke 15, 20. He came to his father, but when the father was still, when the son was still a great way off, the father saw him. He had compassion on him. He ran and he fell on his son's neck and he kissed him. So to me, and this father represents God, this makes God look very compassionate and merciful. Jesus being crucified, Luke 23, 34, he prayed. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. For Jesus to be able to pray for the forgiveness of the men who are crucifying him. Tremendous demonstration of compassion and mercy. And there are other places in Scripture that we could go to that are strong evidence of God's compassion and mercy. But here's what's interesting. When we read the words that God is very compassionate and merciful, we read them in a verse about Job. And that's shocking to me. But it tells me something important. If we can read a verse about Job and see that God was still very compassionate and merciful with him, then that tells me no matter what anyone is experiencing, God is still being very compassionate and merciful. Because my suspicion is, if someone came to you and said, why don't you show me an example in Scripture of God being very compassionate and merciful, the last place you would take them is the book of Job. In fact, the book of Job tends to make God look like he's not compassionate and merciful. And this brings us to lesson two. Even in the worst trials, the Lord is still very compassionate and merciful. Even in the worst trials, the Lord is still very compassionate and merciful. Trials, especially the trials that Job experienced, make God look like he's not compassionate and merciful. But James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that even in that man's life, he was still being very compassionate and merciful. And this is important. One reason I'm talking about this is there's not really a season of life when it's not important to remember God's character. There's never a time when you can say, well, I don't need to remember God's character right now. 
But I will say there are some times it's more important. And probably one of the most important times to remember God's character is when we are suffering. When we're going through trials, that's actually when we're tempted, most tempted to not remember God's character or forget that he's compassionate and merciful. And so we must remember God's character, that he's compassionate and merciful. When we're suffering, we almost have to make a decision or choose to see God that way because we're going to be tempted by the flesh, by the world, by the devil to think God is not compassionate and merciful. Another reason, there's three total, that I think it's important to remember God's character or remember that he's compassionate and merciful when we're suffering. So that's one reason, because we're going to be tempted to forget that. The second reason we should remember is it's a great encouragement to us. We can tell ourselves that no matter what we're going through, there's still an amount of compassion and mercy that God is showing to me or showing to us. And the third reason it's important to remember God is compassionate and merciful is it helps us resist the temptation that we discussed at the very beginning of the circle or beginning of the sermon to bring this full circle the temptation to get angry with god or bitter with him the you know the the, it sounds somewhat uh, like a cliche but there's a lot of truth to it to let to strive for trials to make you better versus bitter and the reason we say that is because it is such a strong temptation during trials to become bitter and one of the greatest encouragements that I can offer to resist that temptation to become bitter toward God is to remember his character. That no matter what we're going through, he's still being very compassionate and merciful to us. We need to continue to tell ourselves that throughout any trial or suffering we're experiencing. Now, here's the obvious question. How was God compassionate and merciful to Job when he was suffering? And I'll say this as we talk, as we answer that question. The same ways that God was compassionate and merciful to Job when he was suffering are the same ways that he is compassionate and merciful to us when we are suffering. And this brings us to lesson three. God was compassionate and merciful in that he, part one, restricted what Satan could do. God was compassionate and merciful in that he restricted or limited what Satan could do. Go ahead and turn to Job 1. Go ahead and turn to Job 1. Now, I'm not asking you to be comfortable with these restrictions. I'm not asking you to approve them or agree with them. And I'll be candid with you, it doesn't matter whether you do or not. Because again, to be God means you do what you want. But I am saying this. He put restrictions on what the devil could do. Look at Job 1.9. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear you for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? So Satan is accusing God of doing what? (laughs) Protecting Job too much. He says, you put this hedge of protection around him. I can't do anything to him. Then look at verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So even more restrictions on Satan. At this point, he couldn't touch him personally. Look at verse chapter 2, verse 6. Turn to Job 2, verse 6. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, but 
spare his life. So again, more restrictions. God stopped Satan from killing him. First, God stopped Satan from touching him, and then God stopped Satan from killing him. And so when people are suffering, I think we all know, I hope, (laughs) that it's a terrible idea to say that it could be worse, right? Just don't ever say that to people. It's not much of an encouragement. Pretty much Job's friends got it right early in the book when they sat there for seven days and what? Said nothing. That's when they were good friends or, or even you could say good counselors. It's interesting that you can typically be the best counselor when you're silent and just listen well. It's, people will come to me at times and they'll say, I don't, I don't know what to say to this person. And I'll say, that's wonderful. Then you'll probably be a great counselor because you'll just sit there and listen. I heard someone say one time, if, and I think there's a lot of truth in it, if you can't improve on silence, don't. If you can't improve on silence, don't. And Job's friends could not have improved on silence because they couldn't see behind the curtain. They didn't know why God was doing the things he was doing. They didn't know about the dialogue between the devil and the Lord. And so they couldn't, should not have been commenting on something of which they were so ignorant. And if we had more time, we could see how God did rebuke Job's friends for opening their mouths when they should have kept, kept their mouths shut. But here's what you need to see. We, we shouldn't say to people, it could be worse, but the truth is what? It could be worse. It could be a lot worse. And even with this coronavirus, there's a tremendous amount of God's mercy for those people looking for it. The number of children who are either not affected by it or are immune to it is tremendous to me. I mean, as bad as this might look, it could be unbelievably worse. And it is only the mercy and compassion of God that it's not worse. And there's plenty of good that God is bringing from this. I can tell you that there are probably more people than we could count who haven't prayed for some number of months or years, and since this has happened, have turned to the Lord. There are some number of people who could even be tuning into this webcast or tuning into some number of webcasts throughout the nation looking to the Lord for answers or help when they haven't previously. One of the greatest things that's taken place from this is the Planned Parenthoods that have been closed down. Do you know there are probably more children alive as a result of this virus than whose lives have been taken simply because that evil institution's doors have been closed? And there's a part of me that thinks, I'll be honest with you, keep it going, Lord. Keep it going as long as you want to save those children. Prevent those people from being able to go in to those evil institutions and have their babies murdered, ripped out of the womb like that. And the number of children that will be alive some number of years or decades from now because this virus has closed those doors is a, a tremendous blessing to me, an immense demonstration of God's compassion and mercy. And so if we want to look for it, we can see God's mercy and compassion in great respects, because it could be worse. It could have even been worse with Job, and it could be much, much worse with us. But God's mercy and compassion prevents that. And the next part of lesson three, God was compassionate and merciful in that he, part two, didn't punish Job. God was compassionate and merciful in that he didn't punish Job. When you look at all Job suffered, you might be quick to say, you know, wow, God was so angry with him. 
God was so upset with him to, to let a man go through everything that Job went through, and that, but that is just not true at all. In fact, it couldn't be further from the truth. That's the opposite. How did God feel toward Job? He thought he was great. And you don't take my word for it. Turn to Job 1.8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job a man who's so evil you should punish him? No. God said, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? Nobody else in the whole world at this time who was like Job, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. I don't know, and I'm not exaggerating, if there is a better description of someone in all, a better description of someone in all of Scripture. I mean, if you could just look for one verse and desire that it describes you, what could be better than this? And this is not what a man said about Job. This is what God himself said about Job. After Satan afflicted Job, look at Job 2 verse 3. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, which is to say he's a persevering saint, even though you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. God thought Job was wonderful, and you have to think that because if you think that Job suffered because he was so terrible, then you think the same thing as what? His friends, right? You, you find yourself in the category of wrong people then. The truth is, God thought Job was wonderful. He was very pleased with him. And so you say, then why did God do so much to Job if he was so pleased with him? God, that's the point. God didn't do this to Job. God restricted what could be done to Job. That's what we just read. God did not punish Job. I would say God didn't even discipline Job. He prevented Satan from making this situation worse. And so here's my point. Since God never punished Job even once throughout the whole book, the very closest that God got to disciplining Job was the questions he asked, which I'm sure were very uncomfortable, but I would say were a far cry from the punishment or the discipline that Job deserved because of his accusations. Here's what I mean. If you think about what Job said, and he was a tremendous man. We just saw the description that God had of him. And you consider how Job criticized God, how accusing Job was, how demanding he was, how he said, I deserve an audience. God should show up and explain himself to me. And you consider Job's self-righteousness as Job declared his innocence and his goodness. And you say, well, how was his innocence and how was the declaration of his innocence and goodness an accusation against God? Here's how. When Job declared his innocence and righteousness, he was accusing God of being unjust because he's saying that, he's saying that he was suffering in ways that he did not deserve. So he was saying that God was not benevolent, but was malevolent for punishing a man who's so good and who didn't deserve to suffer like he was. And so that was a criticism of God. And so you say, okay, well, you're, now I'm criticizing Job. How, how is this? How is what I'm discussing uh, commentary on God's compassion and mercy? Here's how it's a commentary. When God showed up, he didn't kill Job. When God spoke to Job, he let him live. Aside from the 70-some questions he unleashed on him, what else did God do? Nothing. God was very, very merciful and compassionate to a man who brought some terrible accusations against him. 
And I would just say that the way God treated Job when he did show up in the whirlwind really is a great manifestation of his compassion and mercy toward a man who easily could have been killed because of the way that he had acted. I'm, I, you know, I'm a parent. I would be very surprised if there are many parents who let their children talk to them the way that God let Job talk to him. But he did because he's patient and he's mercy, merciful and he's compassionate. Last part of lesson three, God was compassionate and merciful in that he part three blessed Job when the trials were over. God's, God was compassionate and merciful in that he, part three, blessed Job when the trials were over. Go ahead and turn to Job 42. Turn to Job 42. James 5.11, it says, Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. Just one more time. James 5.11 says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure or who persevere. And Job is a tremendous demonstration of that because he endured or he persevered through his trials. And then what did God do with him? God blessed him. Job 42, start at verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when Job had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Skip to verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons, three daughters. He called the name of the first, and he gives these names that I'll probably butcher, but verse 15, in all the land there is no women as beautiful as Job's daughters. Their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Verse 16, after this, Job lived 140 years. He got to see his sons. He got to see his sons' sons, four generations he saw, and then Job died, an old man, full of days. And what you're seeing there is another way that God was very compassionate and merciful to Job in that he blessed him so greatly when the trials were over. And so you're saying this, well, is this any guarantee or is it any promise that God is going to bless us when our trials are over? Yes and no. It depends what you mean by that. There's a possibility that when you endure trials on this side of heaven, that God will bless you as a result. But that's, no, that's not something I can guarantee other than to say you'll be blessed with greater maturity. You'll be blessed with greater patience. You'll be more perfected, which is to say you'll be more like your Savior, and that is a great blessing. There's no guarantee that we'll have the greater wealth or length of life that Job received, but I will say this, if not in this life, then the next life. There is the reward for enduring trials on this side of heaven that receive a reward on the next side of heaven. So if you persevere now, if you maintain your faith and you say, no matter what he does, if he slays me, yet I'll trust him, then there is the reward in the next life. Earlier in the same book, in James, James 1.12, it says, Blessed, listen to the similarity between James 1.12 and James 5.11. Blessed is the man who perseveres through trials, for when he has stood the test, which is what every trial is, it's a test, when he has stood the test or persevered through the trial, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life is just a way to refer to salvation or eternal life. And that's interesting 
when we persevere through trials, what we're really demonstrating is our faith persevered, or our faith is salvific or genuine. We have proved, as Peter said, the sincerity of our faith. And what is the greatest reward for genuine faith? Salvation, eternal life. What could be greater than that? And so when anyone perseveres through trials, what they're really demonstrating is that they have a genuine and sincere faith that saves. And all of us should be examining our faith. All of us should be testing ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. And one of the real blessings associated with trials is that when our, not we, not when we survive the trials, but when our faith survives the trials, and like Job, we haven't cursed God, we can be confident in that faith. So if someone asked me, if someone said, Pastor Scott, why are you confident in your faith? That one of the first things I would say is, I feel like I've went through trials and my faith in the Lord has been maintained. I didn't go through those trials perfectly. There could be some decisions or thoughts that I am ashamed of or wish I had handled differently, but I can see that my faith survived those trials, which allows me to put confidence in it and be confident that the faith I have is salvific. And I would ask all of you to do the same and to view every single trial that way as a wonderful opportunity to be more confident in your faith. If you're going through this life and you have not been considering the genuineness or sincerity of your faith, you really need to because eternity is way too long to not give our faith the the attention that it should receive. And don't just assume that your faith is sincere if you can't think of the ways that it has been tested and revealed. And that's not my opinion. This is what James says, and this is what Peter says, that trials test our faith and reveal the genuineness or sincerity of it. And there's a lot of people whose faith is being revealed through this virus. And the other thing I would say, and I'll close with this, there's a lot of people who are looking at us as believers, looking at our faith, and considering how we're responding. Pastor Nathan mentioned it during the announcements. We are interacting with people. There are people looking at us and seeing how we're responding to what's happening. Are we, are we fearful? Are we cursing God? Are we upset? Or are we persevering so that they then wonder, where does that peace come from that he exhibits whether it's people that you're running into at the store or that you're interacting with on social media or people that call you. There are a lot of people looking at us, and our faith during trials is a great evangelistic tool. I want to close with this quote from Randy Smith. Trials can devastate us because we're often looking at how they're affecting our lives. Yet, when we can die to self and desire God's glory as a result— we are given an entirely different outlook. We can rejoice if we know God's name and God's glory is being magnified through our response. How? When others see our Christ-like attitude, gratitude versus complaining, kindness versus anger, faith versus anxiety, contentment versus greed, joy versus bitterness, God is glorified. It means very little when godly character and spiritual fruit only appear when things are going well in our lives. One of the other things that has taken place through the coronavirus is God is giving every believer an opportunity to reveal Christ, 
to an unbelieving world through the way that we respond to it. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the privilege of being able to reveal Christ through our response to this virus or being stuck in our homes or whatever it is that people consider to be a trial during this time and help us to rise to the occasion, not for our own glory or credit, but for Christ's name and reputation that he would be magnified among the nations and that people could look in and that we would represent him well as his ambassadors during this time. We do thank you for the good that you're bringing forth from all the circumstances that are taking place, all of the confusion and allowing us to preach the gospel and share Christ with others. And so help us that by your grace, we would be faithful to do so with those opportunities you give us. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.